Amen. Sounds like everyone's awake. That's always good. Early. Have you ever uh, had the the right intentions, but when you went to go do something, you just got it all wrong? Uh -huh. I think if we're honest, uh, we can all probably raise our hand and admit that at some time in our lives we've we've sought to do something uh, that we thought would go over really well, and uh, in the end it kind of ended up being a flop. Uh, I met a young lady uh, who I began dating some over 25 years ago now, and uh, she's raising her hand in the front row, and uh, I really fell for her, and I began to um, like hanging out with her, and uh, our relationship was just budding, it was just beginning, and I remember Christmas was approaching, and as a guy who was raised with no sisters, I just have a brother, um, I really had no idea what girls wanted. I had no, uh, I couldn't even fathom what a girl might want for Christmas, but I knew that I needed to do something because I had affection for this young lady and I wanted to show her that affection. So I went shopping, like any good guy will do. And I went through the, through the aisles and I was seeking something that meant something that would show the level of appreciation and, and love and devotion that I, that I had in my heart for this young lady. And I came across these pink bunny slippers. Because <laughs> every guy thinks that a girl wants pink bunny slippers, do they not? That's probably the highest thing on a girl's list of hope hoping for Christmas. If you're a lady here today and you're hoping for pink bunny slippers for Christmas, raise your hand. All right, there are a few. Well, on Christmas morning, I was so excited because I had wrapped those up and I, I was with my girlfriend and, their, and her family and I just was so excited to see her reaction when she opened this amazing gift, this act of worship that I had given her. And she opened it up, and to my shock, she was very polite with her reaction. But it did, it wasn't like, I was thinking like she was going to jump up and down, she was going to throw her arms around me with a big hug, and just be fully amazed at what a, what a creative guy I was and how I got it all right. Well, that wasn't quite the reaction I got, but she was really sweet about it. And, uh, 25 years later, I hope some of my gifts have improved. And uh, as I've gotten to know her, my wife Amy, um, I think I've been able to give her the type of gifts that are really in her heart to want to receive. You know, um, today we're looking at bringing Jesus into focus. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing our series in the book of Luke. And at this point, the disciples are infatuated with Jesus. They're excited about Jesus. They they're basically wanting to worship Jesus. And yet, in their minds, what it looks like to worship Jesus is all wrong. You see, they're, they're trying to impose their view of who they think he is and all that he, they think he wants to do in this moment on him. Rather than truly listen, rather than truly begin to understand Jesus' heart. 
and realize where he wants to take them, the priorities that he has set forth, and he continues to communicate to them. But for whatever reason, they're hard of hearing. They're not listening to what Jesus is saying. And so their act of devotion, their act of worship to Jesus, while it might be well-intentioned, it's all wrong. And they're thinking that Jesus is about to be crowned king and, and he's about to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. He's about to set them free from their earthly chains. And they're pushing him in that direction. They want him to move in that direction. And yet, Jesus has another idea. Jesus has a different priority in mind. Join me in Luke chapter 19. Today's passage is beginning at verse 28, where we're picking up. It says this in Luke 19, 28. When he had said these things, he being Jesus. When Jesus had said these things, what things had he been saying? Well, if you read earlier in Luke 19, or if you were here last week, or if you weren't here, you listened to the online stream. Pastor Kurt took us through that passage. He was basically emphasizing his heart. He was emphasizing who he was and the priorities that he had for people to follow. You remember he met Zacchaeus, a man who was an outcast in the society, a tax collector, a cheat, a traitor to the people. And he decided Zacchaeus was somebody that he was going to love, that he was going to care about. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm going to go to your house, Zacchaeus. We're going to hang out, because I have something I want to share with you. And in verse 10 of chapter 19, it says this, For the Son of Man is the title that Jesus held. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He's sharing his heart, not only with Zacchaeus, but with all the people. You want to know what I'm all about? I'm about seeking and saving those who are lost. You remember earlier, Luke talked about the prodigal son and the father and the heart of a father that, that just desires for that son that's gone astray to come back home. With open arms, the father received him. With open arms and open heart, the father restored him to his rightful place as his son. Not a lowly servant, not someone that would just work his punishment off. No, the full rights of sonship were his because of the Father's grace and love. That's what Jesus wanted people to know and understand about his heart. But he also had a warning. Because later on in the passage, some of the words he had spoke, he says this. He says, he tells a story about a man who goes off and leaves some some responsibility to those that were left behind. And those people that were left behind said, we don't want this man who has gone off to rule over us. And Jesus says in the, in the verse right before our passage this morning, bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and execute them in my presence. Not only does Jesus want us to know his heart, he wants us to know the severe consequences of choosing to reject him. You see, Jesus was serious about coming and, and, and giving his life a ransom for many. 
But many of that day and many even today continue to push him away, to reject that freedom. And that's an offense to God. And that offense is taken seriously by the king, King Jesus. And there is a severe and serious consequence to rejecting the gift of Jesus. So Jesus had said these things. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The whole picture of Luke, starting early in chapter 11, chapter 12, right in that range, it says that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. It's like there's a climactic finish to this story, to this gospel. And it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so they continue to, Luke continues to talk about this destination that Jesus is headed toward. That whatever's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to be significant. It's going to be the pinnacle of the story. And finally, here in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, it says that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You know, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this moment is shared. That's kind of a rare thing. Now, in all, this, all the Gospels, they don't, they don't always tell the same story. They don't always have the same perspective on the story. But in this particular instance, this is where all the writers of the Gospels Come to this agreement and say it's an important piece of the story that we need to tell. Many call it the triumphal entry. That's what we've labeled it. The idea of a king coming into his own. A king coming into his glory. The book of John, chapter 12, verse 1, says it was six days before the Passover. So the Passover the date on the Jewish calendar that falls in the first month of the year. It's called the month of Nisan, or Nisan. Not the car, not the automaker. But it's the first month on the Jewish calendar. And the Jewish calendar is different than our calendar because it goes by the lunar cycle, not the solar calendar. And so they have months that are 28 days long because that's how long it takes for a moon to go from new moon to full moon and then back to new moon again. And at the new moon, the month begins. The Bible tells us that this was the time of Passover. And God had created the date of Passover. You remember it was a time when he had let his people out of Egypt. Out of the slavery and bondage that they were held in for over 400 years in the country of Egypt. And it says that on the 14th day of the first month, God instructed the people to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and to sacrifice that lamb. And to spread the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And anyone who spread the, the blood of the lamb over their doorposts would be protected from the tenth and final plague of Egypt. And that was the plague where the firstborn was killed. So the Bible says that the blood of the lamb shielded that household from death. Now it was approaching this time when the Jewish people were celebrating, remembering this occasion, when God had delivered them out of slavery by a blood of a spotless lamb. And Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. It was six days before the Passover. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, 
these little towns were located about three kilometers. I know we're not very familiar with kilometers. That's about one and a half miles southeast of Jerusalem, just over a little hill at the place called the Mount of Olives. This was a little hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way, but before he arrived there, he had something he was going to do. And the book of John tells us what he was there to do. You see, about three weeks earlier, he had done something amazing. He had been called to the home of some friends again, Mary and Martha. Because their brother was sick, sick to the point of death. And yet Jesus intentionally delayed his arrival. Because he wanted to be glorified. He wanted to be seen for who he truly was by all the people. And he wanted his power revealed. So when he arrives, he sees a mourning procession. People in mourning, people in agony. You know, we've had some tragedies right here in our church family, have we not? I've been up and close and personal in the last couple of weeks to people in mourning. People that are hurting. People that have experienced loss. I know, I, I know that you join me in praying for the Boyd family that they continue to just ask God to heal their hearts, to bind up their wounds from the loss of their son. So this family had experienced loss. You see, Lazarus, by the time Jesus arrived, he was dead. He was in the grave for several days. And he sees the mourning and the weeping, and in that moment, Jesus shows his humanity. He shows his love and compassion people because it says that Jesus wept. Jesus joined them in that moment of agony and hurt and he felt it in his spirit. You see, if you're broken here this morning, if you're hurting, if you're mourning, Jesus is close to you. The Bible tells us he's close to the broken heart. And he is wanting to bind up your wounds. And in that day when Jesus arrived, he says, show me where he lay." Show me where you put him. And they said, Jesus, he's over there. He's in the tomb. He's already dead. There's nothing that he's done. Jesus says, open up the tomb. And they say, Jesus, you don't want to do that. He already probably is stinking. It's not good, Jesus. Why would you want to do that? Jesus says, just trust me. The Bible says that he called into that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. The Bible says that a man dressed in grave clothes walked out of that tomb. Can you imagine being there in that moment? Could you imagine witnessing that scene? I'm imagining the excitement, the overwhelmed, like, unbelief that came over them. Who is this man that can call the dead to life? Who is this man that has that kind of power over the grave? And it says that many believe in that moment, many accepted that he was God, that he was the Messiah. But it says some ran to the Pharisees snitched on them. The Pharisees said, see, if this keeps up, everybody's going to believe in this guy. we got to do something about it. And they started to plot this man's death. Man, what kind of hard heart takes a moment like that 
and turns it into, look, so, so, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. By the way, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, says there's another day coming when this man, Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives. It says that the next time he comes, he's going to, his feet will come and rest on the Mount of Olives, the same place overlooking Jerusalem. But this next time, it says the mountain is going to split in two. At the second coming of Jesus, the Mount of Olives will split in two, and a king will reign on earth, and that king is Jesus. But that wasn't what he was there for in that moment. He was there to seek and save the lost. He was there to give his life a ransom for many. And yet, the disciples kept thinking, he's going to take over. We're going to anoint him king. But Jesus does something interesting. It says, he sent two of the disciples. We don't know which two he picked. But he sends two disciples and said, go to the, into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. You know, I think about Jesus and all the things that his life that he used for himself. And they were all borrowed. Think about the wound that was borrowed for Jesus. It had never been used before. There was no conception that had ever taken place in Mary's womb. It was a place that was set apart for Jesus. Think about the tomb that Jesus was going to be buried in. It was owned by a rich man who hadn't passed away yet. And when he heard that Jesus had, had died, his heart went out and he said, go ahead and use my tomb. It was a tomb that had never been used. It was set apart for Jesus. And now we hear about a young colt. A young donkey on which no one had ever sat that had and it had been set apart for this moment to declare a king. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this. The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Verse 34. The Lord needs it. They said, I love this. I'm thinking about these people that owned the donkey, these people that were there. Here's their possession. Here's something that God had entrusted to their care. And they were raising it. And someone comes along and says, hey, we need that donkey. We need that donkey? Why? Jesus needs that donkey. Jesus wants to use it. And their heart immediately is willing to give it over to Jesus. It makes me think about this. What do you have that the Lord wants to use? What is it that God has entrusted you with? Would you be willing to release it to him? Would you be willing to, to trust him with all the resources that he's blessed you with when he comes knocking and says, I need that. I need to use that. You know, when we were with the boys on Tuesday night, it was a rough scene, and, and they had just lost their son. 
And I realized in that moment that this was not a place that they could stay that And I was thinking about the fact that they needed a place to go. And God laid it on my heart and my wife's heart to say, you know what, open up your home. And there was a part of me, I have to admit, that was a little bit like, but how long will that last? I mean, honestly, I mean, I love them. They know I love them. But there was a selfish part of me that was like, but where are they going to stay? We got five kids. All five of those kids are going to school at home. Where am I going to sleep? But God had been working on my heart. And thankfully, his spirit overcame my selfishness. And there was no doubt they were coming home with us. And my wife went home a little earlier than me, and she prepared our room upstairs for them to be able to have a place to retreat and be comfortable. My question to you guys is, what is it that God has entrusted you with? What resources has he blessed you with? And are you willing at a moment's notice to let those go? You know, there was another family in this church that blessed my heart. Because not knowing if, if Nate and Stacy were going to be able to go back and live in their home, they happened to have another home that they were preparing to sell. Someone in their family had recently moved out and entrusted the care of that home to them. And without hesitation, they contacted me and said, hey, I just want you to let the boys know that if they need a place to stay, we have a place, and it's all theirs, and it's all covered, free of charge. And, and I was able to share that with them, and I guarantee you that blessed their hearts. It overwhelmed them that, that that surrounding them was their church family, with this love. Many of you guys gave up resources to come and provide meals to, and trust me, there was probably like 25 people at my house just constantly, which was awesome. But it also meant there was a lot of mouths. And many of you guys stepped up in amazing ways. I don't even know who you all are. And you provided meals for not just a few people, for massive amounts of people. And I know there's sacrifice. But Jesus had asked for this colt, this donkey. And the people who owned it said, if Jesus needs it, let him have it. We're willing to let it go. That blessed him. Verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Back in the, in, the, in the book of 1 Kings, it talks about this idea that a king was coronated by riding in on a donkey. Solomon rode in on a donkey. There was this idea that this was royalty to ride into town on a donkey. I know you guys are thinking, a donkey? seems weird. That was the tradition. So Jesus, according to tradition, was ushered into Jerusalem on this donkey. Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 4, Matthew, relaying the same message, says this. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then he quotes from Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly 
and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of the donkey. My question was, why in the world would the Gospels, would Luke, choose to include this little piece of Jesus coming into town riding on a donkey? Why? Well, I really think it was because Luke wants to make a point about this book right here, about the scriptures. That the scriptures are important because they point us to Jesus. The scriptures are important for us to know and understand because they contain the truth and the power for us to recognize who Jesus is. See, in that moment, the book of Zechariah that was written hundreds of years before Jesus came had already predicted that the Messiah, the king that God would send to deliver Israel, that that Messiah would come in riding on a donkey. You see, the Bible is not just a book filled with fairy tales, with good Aesop's fables, with morals, with things that we could, ah, that's kind of a good thing to think about or some good wisdom or advice for life. No, the Bible is not meant for that, although it may have that as part of, you know, the advice and the wisdom that we can live like. The Bible is meant to show us who God is, to point us to his Savior, his Messiah, Jesus. It's verifiable. It's true. We can rely on it. We can know that every word that is in here is going to be fulfilled and going to be carried out by God. Luke wanted his readers to see that and to know that. The book of John says this, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Speaking of this moment, it was only after Jesus was glorified, raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. John chapter 2, verse 22 says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, for whatever reason, they were blinded to the reality of who Jesus was. They didn't realize what Jesus truly wanted as worship. Yet I believe the rest of this story here this morning can show us how we can truly worship Jesus. Verse 37. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. In this moment, there was a recognition of who Jesus was. And I believe that the first way we can worship Jesus is to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. You see, you can't worship Jesus until you begin to recognize him for who he truly is. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember the wise men who came to worship Jesus? Remember what they said? Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 says this. They, they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have come from afar. We desire to worship him. See, there was a recognition that he was the king, that he was the promised one, that he was the Messiah. This 
This verse is quoted in a messianic psalm, in a psalm written by King David, projecting about the future deliverer, Messiah. Psalm chapter 118. It's a direct quote of verse 26, except for one word has been changed. Instead of he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed land, Luke chooses to say the king, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus is he. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. You know, that, has to, that little phrase reminds us of something that Luke wrote earlier in his gospel. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Do you remember the shepherds that were out in the field? Do you remember that suddenly they were just watching their sheep, and suddenly the angels of the Lord appeared in the heavens? And they say, glory to God in the highest, and peace on whom his favor rests. It's the same thing. The people are recognizing that he is the one who is born. A savior is born today who is Christ the Lord. My question to you is, do you recognize Jesus for who he is this morning? Because you can't start worshiping him. You can't have him in the center of your heart until you work, until you recognize Jesus for who he truly is. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the ruler of all. And if he's ruler of all, my question is, is he ruler in your heart? Have you given him that place? He is the Savior. He is the Deliverer. He is the one who came to rescue us from the slavery that we find ourselves in to sin. You know, the Bible says that the Passover freed the people of Israel from their sin. When that spotless lamb was sacrificed, and Jesus is about to go to a cross, and he's about to shed his spotless blood, his perfect blood, on our behalf to free us from the bondage to our sin we've all sinned we've all done our own thing we've all offended God in some way or another we've all broke the commandments what's going to rescue you from that punishment that you rightly deserve for the offense that you've given God there's only one Savior there's only one deliverer the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man that's Christ his perfect blood was shed so that you might have forgiveness of your sins. Do you recognize who he truly is? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that was forecast to come. Told by the prophets of old that he was coming. Ever since the book of Genesis, God had promised to send someone to deliver us. That's Jesus. He's certainly Lord. He's God. Remember, he raised a man from the dead to show that he had the power over the grave. And a few, just a week later from now, he's about to give his life on the cross. But three days later, we see something that if it didn't happen, we shouldn't be here today. If it didn't happen, we're fools. We should be out partying and enjoying life because that's all there is. But the resurrection is the truth. The resurrection is a documented event of history. The resurrection is unexplainable. How could a man come out of a grave alive? That's what Jesus did. That's what his disciples claimed they witnessed. That's what many of the early church went to their martyrdom 
They were killed for that testimony because they wouldn't deny that they had seen a risen Jesus, that they knew it was a fact, and that he was Lord of all. They had given their hearts to him in worship. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. What is all this commotion? Why are they celebrating you and saying all these things? It's wrong. It's blasphemy. You're not anything special. You're just a man like the rest of us. Verse 40, Jesus answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. You know, Jesus is making a point here that all of creation worships him. You realize it says, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God in the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The stars of the universe are there worshiping God. The animals on earth worship God. They know who God is. The angels of heaven, the demons in hell, they all know who God is. Worship is holding nothing back. Praising Jesus with all that is within you. Is that how you worship Jesus? You hold nothing back? Or do you kind of think like, well, yeah, I'll worship him by showing up at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I'll get up, I'll crawl out of bed, and I'll show up. But beyond that, don't ask anything more of me, Jesus. Or you know what, I'll put a few dollars in the offering tray because, you know, that seems like a good thing to do. Don't expect me to go any further, Jesus. Where do you draw the line, Jesus? Where do you hold something back? I was convicted this week. There's times where I just want to hold certain things back. This is my time, Jesus. This is my bedroom, Jesus. This is my house. This is my car. God reminded me this week. He said, no, none of this is yours. It's just been entrusted to you. You're a steward over something that is mine. Are you going to open up your heart and worship me? Or are you going to hold something back? Now the story here shifts. It shifts because up until this point, Luke had been talking about the idea that peace had come to earth. But Jesus recognizes that they aren't seeing him for who he truly is. And they're about to reject the Prince of Peace. And although there's no more peace on earth, there is peace in heaven. Because what Jesus did is to reconcile us to God, brings us peace between us and a heavenly Father. And he's asked us to place our faith and trust in the work of Jesus on that cross. And that we can have peace with God. We can have the hope of heaven. You know, I'm confident as I stand here, knowing conversations, prayers I had with Austin. And he had that peace today. He didn't have a lot of peace in his life recently on earth. He was troubled in his spirit and in his soul. But I know that he's with the Prince of Peace. He's in his arms. And he's enjoying that peace because of what Jesus did for him on the cross. And him placing his faith in that work. You see, it's not good works that get us to heaven. It's not how many notches on our belt we can say we did this or that. Or... No, the Bible tells us that all of our works are just filthy rags. 
There's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap except for to fall into the arms of Jesus. To embrace him as the one who brings us to the Father. Have you done that this morning? Verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he now is looking over Jerusalem. It says he wept over it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is looking ahead. He's seeing the, the rejection that they're going to, just in a few days, the same crowd that was yelling, King, you're our king, is going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And just a few years later, in, in the year 70 AD, the Romans would come up against Jerusalem. It would be a siege that would last 143 days. It would kill 600,000 Jews. And it would take thousands more captives. They would destroy the temple and the city. And not until 1948 would Jews again return to their homeland. For almost 2,000 years, that city would lay desolate. Jesus saw these things. And he mourned over the city. He wept over the city because he said, I wish you would have received me for who I truly was, but you didn't. And because you didn't, there's going to be punishment. You see, the third thing that worship is, is worship is recognizing moments of opportunity and responding in faith before it's too late. You know, we're all given moments of opportunity, moments where God opens our eyes to who he is. This is a moment of opportunity for some. And the question is, will you take advantage of moments of opportunity by responding in faith? By recognizing who Jesus is and embracing him as your Savior? Or will you, like they did, not recognize the time of your visitation? I pray that you don't hold anything back here this morning. Embrace him as your Savior if you have not done so. Verse 45, as we begin to wrap up our our morning together, verse 45, that the scene changes to the next day. It's no longer Sunday, it's likely Monday or Tuesday. Remember, Passover is going to be on Friday. He's only a few days now from being arrested, being betrayed by, by someone very close to him, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, being handed over to a a court that had already made its decision. He's just a few days from that moment. And he walks into Jerusalem and into the temple. It says in verse 45, he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You know, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had done a similar thing. The book of John tells us that he went into the temple at the beginning of his ministry and sees all of this commotion happening. 
It wasn't a place where God was honored and worshipped. It had become a place where money changers were trying to get money for different things they were selling. And they were trying to abuse the whole system that God had set up to favor them and to give them some sort of profit. Jesus was sickened by what he saw in his own house of worship. He was disgusted. So it says that at the beginning of his ministry, he took whips and he drove them out with whips. They thought, what in the world is this guy doing? You see how, how much Jesus wants his temple to be here, a place where he is honored, a place where he is set apart as God, a place where he is worshipped. And here, at the last few days of his ministry on earth, he comes and visits the temple, and it's in the same state as the last time. And he can't believe it. He's like, what are you guys doing? You're, you're missing what I want my temple to be. And he has that same righteous indignation, that same righteous anger in his heart that only God can have. And he drives them out again. My house will be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. The fourth and final thing I see about worship that's revealed in this text is this. Worship is dedicating yourself to being a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do you realize that we don't go to a temple anymore to worship? Anybody realize that? Because if this was our temple, that's a sad temple. I mean, as much as Maluli spends time getting it ready, thank you, Maluli, for mowing and for, for making it look as good as possible out here, and Michael and his crew sets up all these tents and the chairs that you're sitting in, that are hopefully more comfortable than sitting on the ground. As much as all of these things are prepared, the temple in Jerusalem was beautiful. It was, it was an amazing place. King Herod had built it up to even more like amazing place to try and satisfy the Jews of that time and keep them happy. But it was a place that was there and designed to honor and reflect God. But we don't worship in a temple, a physical place anymore. The book of Romans chapter 12 in the Bible says this, Therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you realize that he lives in you? That we don't go to some place anymore? That's why it doesn't matter if we meet inside there, or if we meet out here, or if we meet in our homes, or if we meet in a jail cell. It doesn't matter the location. God is with you. He indwells the believer, the, the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He is in us. Don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God inside of yourself. That's how we worship. Dedicate yourself to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Verse 47, I'm going to invite the worship team to come as we respond this morning. Every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him. They could not find a way to do it. Because all of the people were captivated by what they heard. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
for this story from your word. I thank you for the truth that are in these pages. That God, you are the king. Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You are God. God, I pray that you've captivated us this morning by the things that we've heard. That you've moved in our hearts and in our spirits to realize some of the things that you want us to do to worship you that maybe we haven't been doing. Do we truly see you for who you are? Are we willing to hold nothing back? Are we willing and able in our hearts to set you apart as God, to worship you with all, of, all that we have and all that we are? God, I pray that Today might be a moment of decision. That we stop trying to worship you with the ways that we think are worship, and we start listening to your word in the ways that you've revealed in worship. Just like trying to buy my wife bunny God, well intentioned, but I missed the mark. God, I know that you want us to worship you in spirit and in truth. You want us to worship you the way that you've laid out for us. God, help us to do that with all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name.